You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteinerPodbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 323, by Rudolf Steiner. 18 lectures entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 8, given on January 8, 1921. To lead our present studies to a fruitful conclusion, we must continue pursuing the subtle approach I have been adopting, bringing together a great variety of ideas from different fields that can lead us to that goal, to that conclusion. Hence, we'll have to continue with this course also while the other course is going on, between January 11 and 15. We have to arrange the times by agreement with the Waldorf School. There's so much to discuss that we'll need those days also. Now, I'm also aware how many reservations, doubts, and problems may be arising in connection with this subject. Please prepare whatever questions you'd like to pose if you need further elucidation. I'll then try to incorporate the answers into one of next week's lectures so as to make the picture as complete as possible. Working in this way, we'll be able to continue as heretofore, bringing in what I would like to call the subtler aspects of our theme. Let's recall again the method we've been pursuing. Our aim is to gain a deeper understanding of astronomy, the science of the heavens, in connection with phenomena on earth. We began by pointing out that conventional astronomy takes into account only what's observed directly with the outer senses, also as aided by optical instruments and the like. This was the basic orientation of all previous attempts to understand and to explain celestial phenomena right up to the present. They took their start from the, quote, apparent movements, close quote, as they would now be called, of the celestial bodies. First, they considered the apparent movement of the starry heavens as a whole around the earth and the apparent movement of the sun. Then they observed the very strange paths described by the planets in their immediate visual appearance. Portions of the planetary paths look like loops. See figure 1. The planet moves along here, reverses, and goes back and then forward again, here. And now, they reasoned, if the earth itself is moving, and we have no direct perception of this movement, the real movements of the heavenly bodies must be different from the immediate visual appearance. Interpreting along these lines, by observing the mathematical structures, they arrived at a model of what the real movements might be like. So they arrived at the Copernican system and at its subsequent modifications. That was essentially the scientific method they employed. They looked first to the data of the senses and then to the elaboration of those data via the interpretive activity of the intellect. We then pointed out 
that this procedure can never lead to an adequate penetration of the celestial phenomena, if only for the simple reason that the mathematical method itself is insufficient. We begin our calculations along certain lines, and then we are brought to a halt. For, as I was reminding you, the ratios between the periods of revolution of the several planets are irrational numbers, incommensurable magnitudes. Hence, we don't reach the veritable fabric of the celestial phenomena through calculation. Sooner or later, we have to leave off. It follows that we have to adopt a different method. We have to take our start not only from what we observe when we look out into the universe with the sensory part of our constitution, rather, we have to include our human nature as a whole, and perhaps not only humans but other creatures too, the kingdoms of nature upon the earth. We pointed out all these things, and then I showed how the whole human constitution can be seen in relation to certain phenomena we encounter within the evolution of the earth, namely the ice ages, in their rhythmical recurrence. They also have to do with the inner evolution of human beings and of humanity. If that's the case, then such connections give us indications of what the movements in celestial space might be. These are the kinds of things we'll have to pursue further. Before continuing the more formal lines of thought with which we ended yesterday's lecture, let's consider once again this connection between human evolution and the evolution of the earth through the ice ages. We saw that the special kind of knowledge or cognitional life we call our own today has arisen only since the last ice age. Moreover, all the cultural epochs, about which I have lectured so often, have taken place since then, namely the ancient Indian, the Persian, the Egypto-Chaldean, the Greco-Roman, and then the epoch in which we are now living. Before the last ice age, we said, something must have been evolving within human nature that's more withdrawn in our own constitution today, something that lies less upon the surface, namely our faculty of forming concepts and mental pictures. And we said yesterday that we come to understand the quality of this faculty only if we compare it with our dream life. It's only because sensory experience is there that our concepts receive a certain configuration and a saturated content. The concepts and mental pictures are being formed in a more inward region of our bodily organic life, farther back, as it were, behind the sensory perceptions. And this activity is dim and hazy, like our dream life. Our thinking would be as dim as it is in dreams if the experiences of the senses didn't burst in upon us every time we awaken. Pardon the odd expression. More dim and hazy than our life in sensory perception, this inner life of concepts and mental images is related to those earlier phases in the evolution of human consciousness which preceded the last glacial epoch, or which, to speak in other philosophical terms, belonged to ancient Atlantis. So, then, what must it 
have been like for these prehistoric humans? In the first place, they must have had a far more intimate inner connection with the surrounding world than we have today through sensory perception. We can control our sensory perception with our will. It's by means of our will that we direct the vision of our eyes and by directing our attention we can go even further in governing our sensory perception by means of our own will. In any case, our will is very much at work in our sensory perceptions, making us to a large extent independent of the outer world. We orient ourselves by means of our own voluntary choices. We're able to do this now only because, as human beings, we have, in a way, emancipated ourselves from the universe. Before the last ice age, we can't have been thus emancipated. Parenthesis, I say, can't have been because I want to speak from the perspective of conventional empirical science. Close parenthesis. During that time, as our faculty of forming concepts was still evolving, our inner states must have been more dependent on all that was going on around us in the environment. Today we see the world around us shining in the sunlight. But the way we see it is subject to a kind of inner subjectivity. In Atlantean times, the way in which human beings were given over to the outer world must have been somehow dependent on the illumined earth and its illumined objects. And then again, at night, when the sun was not shining, on the darkness, on the gloom. In other words, they must have experienced periodic alternations in this respect. Their inner life of mental imagery, which as we saw was then in process of development, must alternately have been flaring up and then ebbing away again. This inner periodicity brought about by their relationship to the surrounding universe was indeed not unlike the peculiar periodicity of women's organic functions about which we spoke before. And saw is related to the lunar phases, though only as regards length of time. This inner functioning of the female constitution, parenthesis, you'll remember I said that it's there in males also, but in a more inward way and therefore less easily perceived, close parenthesis, was at one time actually linked with the corresponding events in the outer universe. It then emancipated itself and became a property inherent in human nature. So that now what goes on in human beings in this respect no longer needs to coincide with the outer events. Yet the periodicity, the sequence of phases, remains the same as it was when the one coincided with the other. Something quite similar is true of the rhythmic alternation in our inner life, in our ideation, our forming of mental images. The whole way we are organized in this respect, implanted in us in a far distant past, is to this day more or less independent of the life of the outer senses. But something similar has been retained in its place. Day by day we undergo an inner rhythm, our powers of ideation alternately lighting up and growing dimmer. It's a daily ebb and flow. We fail to notice this only because it's far less intense 
than that other periodicity which runs parallel to the lunar phases. Nevertheless, in the processes related to our heads, we have to this day an alternation between a brighter and a dimmer kind of life. In the processes related to our heads, we bear a rhythmic life. At one time we're more inclined, and at another time we're less inclined to meet our sensory perceptions actively from within. It's a 24-hour rhythmic alternation. It would be interesting to observe, it might even be represented graphically by means of curves, how individuals vary as regards this inner periodicity of the head, the forces of ideation and mental imagery alternating between brighter and livelier and then again dimmer and sleepier times. The dim and sleepy forces of ideation and mental imagery represent, so to speak, the inner night of the head the brighter ones, the inner day. But this doesn't coincide with the external alternation of day and night. We experience an inner alternation of light and darkness or relatively bright and dim conditions. And people vary in this respect. Some people experience this inner alternation of light and dark in such a way that they tend to connect the lighter period of their ideation with their sensory perceptions. Others are inclined to connect their darker faculties with sensory perceptions. Individuals are organized in one way or the other and differ accordingly as to their potential, their capacity to observe the outer world. One person will be inclined to focus sharply upon the phenomena of the outer world. Another tends to do so less, is more inclined to an inner brooding, All this is due to the alternating conditions I have been describing. And as educators, my dear friends, we especially should cultivate the habit of observing such things. They will be valuable signposts for us, indicating how we should treat the individual children, both in raising and in educating them. What's of particular interest to us today, however, is to note that humanity now internalizes what it once underwent in a reciprocal relationship with the outer world. So that now it now works within us as an inner rhythm, the phases no longer coinciding with the outer, yet still retaining the same periodicity. Hence we're moved to assert, before the Ice Age, prehistoric humanity's periods of brighter and more intimate participation in the cosmos, and then of dim withdrawal into itself, will have coincided regularly with the processes of the outer world. We still retain an echo of this rhythm, which, in those long-ago times, proceeded from their symbiosis with the universe around them, where, at one moment, their consciousness was illuminated and filled with pictures, while, at another time, they withdrew into themselves, brooding over the pictures. It's an echo of this latter state today, whenever we're inclined to brood, more or less melancholically, upon our own inner life. Once again, therefore, what ancient cultures experienced in and with the world has been driven farther back into our inner bodily nature, while at the outer periphery a new development has taken place in our faculties of sensory perception.
Humanity had those faculties in earlier epochs too, of course, but not developed in the way they are now. It follows that when we look in this way at what has taken place in humanity through our connection with the phenomena of the world around us, we're gaining insight into the cosmos itself. We have to employ the phenomena of human nature itself as a reagent for judging celestial phenomena. But to complete this process, we need the other kingdoms of nature too. Here, I would like to draw your attention to something well known and evident to everyone, although they fail to recognize its essential significance. Consider annual plants, the characteristic cycle of their development. We see in them quite evidently what I was discussing yesterday the difference between the direct and indirect influences of the sun. Where the sun works directly, the flower comes into being. Where the sun works in such a way that the earth interposes itself, we get the root. Plants also reveal what we were speaking about yesterday with regard to animals and then applied in another way to ourselves as humans. Yet we shall see the full significance of this only if we relate it to another fact. There are perennial plants too. What is the relation of perennial plants to annuals as regards the way in which the growth of plants belongs to the earth as a whole? Perennials retain their stem or trunk and it's fair to say that each year a new world of plants springs forth from the trunk itself. It has been modified and metamorphosed, of course. And yet it's a world of plants growing on the trunk, which grows out of the earth in turn, see figure 2. If you have a sense for morphology, you'll see it as clearly as can be. It almost goes without saying. Here on the left I have the surface of the earth, and here's my annual plant growing out of it. Here on the right is the stem or trunk of the perennial, from which new vegetation, new plant growth springs in each succeeding year. I have to imagine something or other, let's leave it vague for the moment, continuing from the earth into the trunk. What this plant here, figure two on the left, is growing on, has to be there somehow in the trunk also, on the right. In other words, something or other must be entering into the trunk from the earth. I have no right to regard the trunk of the perennial as a thing apart, as not belonging to the earth. Rather, I have to regard it as a modified portion of the earth itself. Only then will I be seeing it rightly. Only then will I discern the inner relationships as they really are. Something is there within perennial plants that's otherwise only within the earth, and by virtue of which the plant becomes a perennial. By taking something of the earth into itself, perennials free themselves from dependence on the annual course of the sun. Hence we can truly say that perennials rest themselves away from their dependence on the sun's annual course. They emancipate themselves from the yearly course of the sun, in that they form the trunk, receiving into their own nature, becoming able, as it were, to do for themselves what otherwise 
could come about only through the working of the whole cosmic environment. Aren't we seeing the same thing living in the plant world that we saw in humans living before the last ice age? For in those times, as I was showing, the inner rhythm of their ideation developed by relating to the surrounding world. Something that was part of the immediate relationship between human beings and the surrounding world has since become a feature of their own inner life. We see the same kind of change in the plant kingdom in that annuals have become perennials. This is indeed a universal process within the cosmos. Living entities are on the way to emancipating themselves from their original connections with the surrounding world. Seeing the perennials arising, we have to say it's as though the plant, when it becomes a perennial, had learned something from the time when it was dependent on the cosmic environment. It's as though it had learned something which it now can do itself. Now it's able to bring forth fresh shoots year after year out of itself. This fact is extraordinarily important for understanding relationships within the cosmos. We don't reach an understanding of the phenomena of the world by merely staring at the things that happen to be side by side or that are crowded into the field of view under a microscope. We have to see the larger whole and recognize individual phenomena within that larger nexus. Look at it all once more, just the phenomena themselves. Annual plants give themselves over to the cycle of the year with all the changing relations to the cosmos that this involves. This influence of the cosmos begins to fade away in perennials. In perennials, what would otherwise vanish in the further course of the year is, as it were, preserved. In the trunk, we see springing from the ground the working of the year made permanent and lasting. We see this transition of what was first connected with the outer world into a more inward way of working throughout the whole range of nature's phenomena, insofar as they are cosmic. And that's why we always have to seek the relationships between our earth and the cosmos within certain phenomena, whereas in the case of other phenomena, we have to say that these cosmic effects conceal themselves. We need to discover which of the phenomena are sensitive reagents, revealing the cosmic influences. Annual plants will tell us something of the Earth's connection with cosmos, but perennials will no longer be able to tell us much. Again, the relationship between humans and animals can give us an important clue. Look at the animals' development though we might also include it, we'll disregard embryological development for now. The animal is born and grows until it reaches a certain limit. It reaches puberty. Look at the animal's whole life, up to puberty and beyond. Without any added hypotheses, simply observing the facts, you have to admit that what happens to the animal once puberty has been attained is strange. For in a way the animal is finished then, as far as the earthly world is concerned. Needless to say, any such statement is only an approximation to the truth. Yet, on the whole, 
we have to admit that no further progression can be seen in animals, not after puberty. Puberty is the most important goal of animals' development. The immediate consequence of puberty, all that happens as an outcome of it, is there, of course. But we can't claim that anything takes place from then on that deserves to be called a true progression. With human beings it's different. Humans remain capable of development far beyond puberty, but the development internalizes itself. Indeed, it would be very sad for us if we were to end our development at puberty in the way animals do. Humans transcend this limitation. We hold something in reserve that pushes on, out, further. We can undertake quite other journeys, unconnected with sexual maturity or puberty. Here we see again something similar to the internalization of the cycle of the year in perennials, as opposed to annual plants. What we see in the animal when puberty is reached is transmuted into a more inward process in humans from puberty onward. Therefore something is at work in humans that's related to a cosmic process in our development from birth until puberty, and that then gets emancipated from the cosmos, just as it does in perennial plants when puberty has been outgrown. So here you have a way of judging natural phenomena that allows you to begin finding signposts indicating the connections between earthly creatures and the cosmos. We see how when the cosmic influences cease as such, they're transplanted into the inner nature of the several creatures. Let's take note of this and set it aside for the moment. Later we'll find the synthesis between this aspect and another very different one. Now, let's take up again what I have discussed repeatedly, the incommensurable ratios between the periods of revolution of the planets of the solar system. Now we can ask, what would the outcome be if they were commensurable? Cumulative disturbances would arise whereby the planetary system would be brought to a standstill. This can be proved by a simple calculation, though it would lead too far afield to perform it now. Only the incommensurability between the periods of revolution enables the planetary system to stay alive, so to speak. In other words, the solar system contains, among other things, a condition tending even to a standstill. It's precisely this condition that we're actually calculating when we hit the limit of calculation. But when we arrive at incommensurability, we don't just bump up against the limit to calculation. Rather, that's precisely where we arrive at the life of the solar system. When calculating the solar system, we find ourselves in a strange predicament. If the solar system were completely calculable, it would die indeed, as I said before, would have died long ago. It lives by virtue of the fact that we cannot calculate it fully. What's alive in the solar system is precisely what we cannot calculate. Now, what is the basis for these calculations from which, again, if we could pursue them to the end, we would have to deduce the inevitable death of the whole system? 
We base them on the force of gravitation, universal gravitation. Suppose we take our start from gravitation and nothing more, and we think it through rigorously. We get the picture of a planetary system subject to the force of gravitation. Then we do indeed arrive at commensurable ratios. But the solar system would inevitably die. In other words, when we base our calculations solely upon the force of gravity, we're able to calculate only insofar as death prevails in the solar system. In other words, there has to be something in the solar system, something different from gravitation, to which the incommensurability is due. The planetary orbits can be brought into accord with the force of gravity very nicely, even as to their genesis. But their periods of revolution would then have to be commensurable. However, there is something which cannot be brought into accord with the force of gravitation, and which moreover doesn't fit so neatly into our planetary system. I mean what reveals itself in the comets. The comets play a very strange role in the solar system, and recently they've been leading scientists to some very strange notions. I leave aside the kinds of explanations that often tend to arise, whereby whatever has been discovered most recently is seized upon to explain phenomena in other fields. In physiology, for instance, there was a time when researchers were fond of comparing the so-called sensory nerves to telegraph wires leading in from the periphery. The impulse was supposed to be transmitted via some central switch or commutator leading to voluntary impulses and actions. From the centripetal nerves it was supposed to be switched over to centrifugal nerves. They compared it all to a telegraph system. Maybe someday something quite different from telegraph wires will be invented and then via this way of thinking a very different picture will be applied to the same thing. That's how scientific fashions change. Whatever happens to have been discovered is quickly seized on as a handy way of explaining the phenomena in other fields, much as they do in medicine. The moment anything new has been found, it's discovered to be a valuable remedy though little thought is given to the inner reasons. Now that we have x-rays, x-rays are the remedy of choice. But we use them only because we happen to have found them. It's as though we let ourselves be swept along chaotically, willy-nilly, by whatever happens to turn up from time to time. So it was with the comets. Through spectroscopic investigations and subsequent comparisons with the corresponding results for the planets, the idea arose that the phenomena might be explained electromagnetically. Such ideas will at most lead to analogies, which may no doubt occasionally have some connection with reality, but which certainly won't satisfy us if we're looking into it more deeply. Yet, as I said, leaving this aside, there was one thing that inevitably emerged when the phenomena of comets were studied in more detail. While For the rest of the planetary system, they always speak of gravitational forces. The peculiar position of the comet's tail in relation to the sun inevitably drove the scientists to speak of forces of repulsion from the sun, forces of recoil. The terminology is not the main point. That will vary with the prevailing fashion, of course. 
The point is that here science was obliged to look for something in addition to, and indeed opposed to, gravity. In effect, with a comet, something different continually enters our solar system, something that's in a way inherently opposed to the inner fabric of the solar system as such. Hence, it's understandable that for ages the riddle of the comets gave rise to manifold superstitions. People had the feeling that the orbits of the planets express laws of nature that are inherent within the solar system, while something contrary enters in with the comets. Here, something enters in that stands in an inverse relationship to our planetary system. Thus, they were inclined to see the planetary phenomena as an embodiment, a realization of normal laws of nature, and to regard the apparitions of comets as something contrary to these normal laws. There were times, comparatively recent times, when comets were associated with moral forces flying through the universe, scourges of a sinful humanity. Today we rightly look on that as superstition. Yet even Hegel couldn't quite escape associating the comets with something not quite explicable or only half explicable by ordinary means. Of course, the 19th century no longer believed that the comets appear like judges to chastise humanity. Yet in the early 19th century they collected statistics purporting to connect them with good and bad vintages. These also occur somewhat irregularly. Their sequence doesn't seem to follow regular laws of nature. And even Hegel couldn't quite escape this conclusion. He thought it plausible that the appearance or non-appearance of comets would have to do with the good and bad vintages. The standpoint of our contemporaries, at least of those who share the contemporary scientific outlook, is that the solar system has nothing to fear from the comets. Yet the phenomena that they evoke within this planetary system seems to have little inner connection with it. Like cosmic eccentrics, they seem to come from very distant regions into the neighborhood of our sun. Here they call forth certain phenomena, indicating forces of repulsion from the sun. The phenomena appear, wax and wane, then vanish. There was a man who still retained a certain fund of wisdom whereby he contemplated the universe not only with his intellect but with the whole of his human nature. He still had some intuitive perception of the phenomena of the heavens. I'm talking about Kepler. He was the author of a strange saying about the comets, a saying that gives food for thought to anyone who is at all sensitive to Kepler's way of thinking and the mood of his soul. We spoke of his three laws, a work of genius when one considers the astronomical thought of his time. Kepler arrived at his laws out of a feeling for the inner harmony of the solar system. For him it was no mere dry calculation, it was a feeling of harmony. He felt his three planetary laws were the ultimate quantitative expression of something qualitative, the ultimate mathematical expression of the harmony pervading the whole solar system. And out of this same feeling he made a statement about the comets, the deep significance of which anyone can feel who is able to enter into such things at all. Kepler said, In the great universe, even the universe into which we are able to see by night, there are as many comets 
as there are fishes in the ocean. We see only very, very few of them, while all the rest remain invisible, either because they're too small or for some other reason. Even external research has tended to confirm Kepler's saying. The comets seen were recorded even in olden times, and it's possible to compare the number. Since the invention of the telescope, ever so many more have been seen than before. Also, when looking out into the starry heavens under different conditions of illumination, that is to say, making provision for extreme darkness, a larger number of comets are recorded than otherwise. Thus even empirical research comes near to what Kepler exclaimed, inspired as he was by a deep feeling for nature. Now, if one speaks at all of a connection between the cosmos and what happens on the earth, surely it's not right to dwell one-sidedly on the relations between the other planets of our system and the earth, omitting the heavenly bodies that come and go as the comets do. It's especially one-sided, since we now have to admit that the comets give rise to phenomena indicating the presence of quite other forces, forces opposite in kind to those to which we usually attribute the coherence of our solar system. The comets do in fact bring something opposite into our system. And if we follow it up, we have to admit that this too is also of great significance. Something that is somehow opposed to the force that holds it together enters into our solar system with the comets. In an earlier course of lectures about natural phenomena, I drew attention to something I would like to recall now. Those who were present, the course was mainly about heat or warmth, will no doubt recall it. I said that when we look at the phenomena of warmth in their relation to other phenomena of the universe, we're obliged to form a far more concrete idea of the ether, about which the physicists generally speak in rather hypothetical terms. I said that in the formulas of physics, wherever the force of pressure occurs as regards ponderable matter, we have to replace it by a force of suction as regards the ether. In other words, if we insert a plus sign for the intensity of a force in the realm of ponderable matter, we're obliged to give a minus sign to the corresponding intensity in the ether. I suggested that the well-known formulas should be reviewed with this end in view. For if this were done, one would see how remarkably they harmonize with the phenomena of nature. Take, for example, the whole charade of Clausius's kinetic theory of gases, of heat itself, the molecules impinging on each other and on the walls of the containing vessel. Take all that brutal play of mutual impact and collision which is supposed to represent the thermal condition of gas. Phenomena will become clear and penetrable the moment we perceive instead that within warmth itself there are two conditions. One is akin to the conditions that we observe in ponderable matter, and the other has to be conceived as akin to the ether. In this respect, warmth is different from air or light. If we're calculating truly, we have to use the negative sign throughout for light. Whatever is meant to represent the effects of light in our formulas must bear a negative sign. 
For air or gas, the sign must be positive. For warmth, on the other hand, the positive and negative will have to alternate. Only then will the distinctions between conducted heat and radiant heat, etc., become clear and transparent. Within the realm of matter itself, these things reveal the need for a qualitative transition from the positive to the negative in characterizing the different kinds of force. And we now see very significantly how we also have to pass from the positive, that is gravitation, to the corresponding negative, the repelling force, with regard to the solar system. One more thing I will say today, if only to formulate the problem. For the moment I won't pursue it further, but only put the problem. We'll have time to go into these things in later lectures. Now that we have ascertained all this about the comets, let me compare the relation between our planetary system and the comets to what's there in the ovum, the female gamete, in its relation to the male element, the fertilizing sperm. Try to imagine, try to visualize the two processes. Just consider them purely as pictures. Here is the solar system. It receives something new into itself, namely the effects of a comet. And here is the ovum. It receives into itself the fertilizing effect of the male cell, the spermatozoid. Look at the two phenomena side by side without prejudice, as you might do in ordinary life when you see two things obviously comparable side by side. Don't you find plenty of similar features when you contemplate these two? My interest today is not to maintain any theory or hypothesis. I want only to indicate what you'll see for yourselves as soon as you look at these things in their true nexus. Let's pursue these matters more concretely and in greater detail tomorrow. The end of Lecture 8